Stress, in biological terms, is an organism's bodily response to some kind of challenge. This can be environmental, like from the ground shifting or shaking underneath it, or in response to the presence of another organism, or it can be internal, some kind of subconscious misfire that makes this organism think that there's something going on environmentally when in fact there is not. So when an organism's environment changes in a way that causes stress, parts of its biology light up. In humans and other creatures with relatively sophisticated biologies, our autonomic nervous system, the part of us that regulates heart rate, pupil size, sexual arousal, and other subconscious things of that nature, will trigger, as will our hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal, or HPA, axis, which is made up of glands that modulate the hormones that are active in our bodies. One such hormone is called cortisol, and it can trigger changes in our metabolic, psychological, and immunological bodily functions, changing things like our blood flow, our thinking and perception, and our body's defense mechanisms. The consequences of these quick-twitch physical responses can be immense. They can alter our internal reward systems, changing what we feel like doing and feel good doing. They can alter our memories, causing us to recall things happening differently than they actually did. And they can even make us more susceptible to disease and injury. And running parallel to all of this is what is called the sympathetic nervous system which can be triggered by these other changes and in turn can activate our so-called fight-or-flight response, which further deviates our bodies from their normal functions in order to essentially optimize us to mess someone up, to fight something, or to get the hell away from a bad situation. Thankfully, we also have what's called a parasympathetic nervous system, which is focused on returning our chemical-flooded bodies to normal homeostasis, our everyday, non-freaked-out mode of operation, which represents the best possible equilibrium between all the forces we have pushing and pulling against each other inside our bodies at all times. So that is biological stress. That's what happens when you are startled by a shadow, or thrown into a war zone, or bitten by an insect. Psychological stress is similar in that it can activate a lot of the same internal biological mechanisms and lead to many of the same chemical responses. But it's dissimilar in that typically it's a consequence not of a physical, tangible threat in our environment, but rather the consequence of our own consciousness. What that means in practice is that we can worry about our social relationships at work, concerned that maybe we said something stupid and now a particular coworker might think less of us as a result. And that can lead to a kind of slow burn version of the biological stress responses that you would experience when being chased by a wolf. It's nowhere near the same thing. You probably won't be torn apart and devoured by your coworkers, no matter what you said, at least at most offices. But because of the invisible rules and threats and opportunities that surround us in the modern world, things that are not real in the same sense as a wolf 
but which are very real in the sense that they can impact our lives positively or negatively, our bodies respond in a similar fashion. Regardless of whether the threat is a legit, fanged, hungry existential menace, or merely a perceived social misstep that could cause us mental angst or anguish. And because of this, we get that fight-or-flight feeling when asked to speak in public in front of a crowd. And we're more likely to fall ill with a cold when the social dynamics at work make us feel uncomfortable or under pressure for a long enough duration. These two types of stress are at the core of what I want to talk about today. Specifically, I want to address the secondary consequences of being stressed and the often invisible cycle of stress propagation that we have created and that we continue to stoke in many different ways in the modern world. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from Futurity, and it's entitled, Stress Makes Us Slower to Perceive New Threats. This piece describes a study that was recently published in the science journal Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, and that study focused on gauging how well we adjust our threat perception, meaning if we become stressed, about a threat, and then a new threat appears, and that first one is then diminished in threat level, making it less of a threat, how well would we adjust our expectations and understanding of what's currently, right now, a threat? The answer, it turned out, was not terribly well. Our bodies and minds are great at making us jump into action quickly and tugging on all of our internal threat response triggers but not so good at helping us respond to new or changing threats mid-stress arousal. So while in this heightened state, we're less likely than usual to notice shifts in our environments that indicate that we should possibly change our priorities. Or, said another way, using the words of that article, quote, participants' stress led to a slower rate of learning, end quote. We become less capable of taking in new information, mentally filing that information correctly, and then adjusting our worldviews accordingly when we are stressed. When we think about stress and when we have public discussions about it, usually we focus on the individual downsides of being stuck in this state. There are very real health concerns associated with having all those hormones flooding through your system for too long. And as I mentioned in the intro, even your immune system suffers as it reallocates resources to help assuage what should be a short-term threat. And if that turns out not to be the case, if you're stressed out about work for months at a time, for instance, your immune system and your whole body, all those systems that generally work well and in a balanced way, they're all drained and weakened. We become more susceptible to all kinds of health issues. This is worth knowing about and discussing. This element of the stress discussion is a very valid and important element. But the secondary consequences of being stressed are what I want to spend most of this episode talking about. These are the less obvious 
less discussed, and more difficult to pin down issues that arise as a result of our high stress levels. These are issues that become meaningful on a societal scale rather than just a personal scale. Think about the world that we live in today. Ours is a civilization powered by amazing technologies that keep us informed and connected. The tools we use are valuable and amazing. They are worthy of appreciation and celebration. But these same tools and networks can drain our willpower. They can make us lazy. They can make us and keep us constantly aware of things happening around the world that are not immediately relevant to us, but which are nonetheless presented as if they are the most important thing to us specifically. These are relatively innocuous downsides that are often balanced or even nullified by their positive counterpoints. Yes, we can become complacent and distracted as a result of these tools, but we can also get more done with less effort, and we're just as likely to be motivated as demotivated by that potential. Yes, we are more aware of inessential information about the world around us, but we're also, on average, becoming more aware of each other and empathetic toward those from differing backgrounds, even if that doesn't always seem to be the case. But one byproduct of both the pros and the cons of many of these technologies is that they do tend to keep us a hair's breadth away from arousal in the non-sexual sense at all times. Both the threats and the opportunities that are just a tap or a click or a spoken command away ensure that we're constantly perched on the precipice of some kind of biological stress response, which in turn triggers those internal processes that I mentioned before. This means that not only are we easily distracted by all the shiny things being flashed in front of us 24-7, which has a lot of consumerist and distractionist downsides, but we're also less likely to notice when things around us shift in a threatening way. If, for instance, a politician wanted to get away with something nefarious, they might stoke some flames elsewhere, get everyone to pay attention to that particular conflagration, and then go about their business. The public, they'll know, only has so much bandwidth, but is also less likely to be able to pivot quickly from one potential threat to another. As a result, that politician is less likely to become the focus of truly bad press, because we, the public, will likely fail to reset our stress responses to focus on this thing that they're trying to hide. We're more likely to be all aflutter about that initial distraction and or exhausted from expending all of our stress response energy on it. And unfortunately, this quirk doesn't even require some kind of malicious politician to become incredibly dangerous to us as a globe-spanning society. Because of how information is shared, and because that information isn't always immediately relevant to us, in the sense of being geographically local to us, the chances of us ever being truly focused, of having our stress response systems completely aimed at solving a truly monumental and immediate issue, are very low. In almost every case, at least some of our attention will be focused elsewhere, and will fail to realign those responses appropriately until it's too late. The term compassion fatigue, also called secondary trauma stress, is a consequence of this tendency of ours. Even seeing other people suffer can cause us to feel that suffering or to be triggered into action 
our stress hormones pumping and minds racing for ways to alleviate a threat, only to find that when a true threat arrives, when a wolf starts chasing us as we leave the workplace that has had us stressed out for social reasons all day, we are less capable of making smart decisions. Our HPA axis is all out of whack. Even more twisted is that many of us get stuck in a stress loop where something triggers the stress and then we feel horrible and overengaged and exhausted. And then we get stressed out about the consequences of that initial stress response, which then triggers another flurry of consequences, which then leads to more stress. If we ever do manage to extract ourselves from this cycle, the chances of a random variable like a news item or a Facebook timeline photo triggering a new round of stress is quite high. This last tendency can also have other consequences, including the desire to avoid these outside variables completely. I know several people personally who proudly tell me that they never read the news. They don't want to know what's happening in the world because it just stresses them out. I can understand that sentiment. And I actually think it's often a good move in very intentional and limited ways, especially for people who are oversaturated with inputs from sources that are optimized to engage us in these negative ways. Facebook, for instance, is economically incentivized to keep us emotionally invested in their platform. So they show us things they think will make us laugh or smile or cry or become outraged or click like or leave a smiley face or leave angry comments. Anything that keeps us on Facebook, increasing the amount of data that we produce about ourselves that they can then turn around and sell to marketers, while we also continue to be on their platform and view more ads. They are not intentionally trying to stress us out, but because of how they achieve their goals, they do as a byproduct. And I can't really blame people who leave Facebook because of this. I personally have stripped my Facebook timeline all the way down, so I only see things that my close friends and family members share and nothing else. But that said, that next step of avoiding all news, I would argue, is actually a long-term negative decision. When we are less informed, we make decisions based on more limited information and are therefore less likely to make the correct decisions, the informed decisions that suit our personal needs and priorities. On top of that, we're more likely to misunderstand the forces that are swirling around us, the catalysts that lead to certain events, and our ignorance about these causes and the potential effects that eventually result from them can make these outside stimuli even more disturbing or terrifying than if we actually understood the mechanisms behind them. We then might come, in some ways, to supernaturalize the world because rather than seeing cause and effect and slowly coming to understand more of how things intersect and interact and thereby developing solutions or heuristics about how to deal with these things, we actually shut down our education in favor of short-term peace of mind. We come to understand less and everything around us seems to have no logic to it. And so again, I totally understand the desire to step away from the news, but the idea that we become better off by being less informed is regressionist theory at its finest. Taken to an extreme, we may as well just go back to living in caves without electricity or clean drinking water. 
because being truly ignorant about the world, about everything outside of our immediate line of sight, would theoretically cause us even less stress, right? In such a circumstance, we wouldn't know that we should be concerned about an impending ecological disaster, so we wouldn't stress out about it. Yay! We wouldn't worry, that is, until the disaster was upon us, and we didn't know what to do to save ourselves because, for all we knew, it was a magical disaster sent by elves to punish us for eating berries off a particular bush or choosing the wrong cave to live in. Ignorance is bliss, but do we really want to indulge in the bliss of the ignorant when that indulgence also leaves us powerless to change anything for the better? Now, all that said, paring down inputs, consuming more intentionally, that does make sense to me. I think I've made my bias toward being informed rather than being ignorant pretty clear. But being informed doesn't mean being overwhelmed by information and left so inundated that you're unable to think about what you've read or too stressed to make connections between disparate bits of data. It's about figuring out where you can get good information consistently and which information sources are legitimate and then drawing conclusions based on that. I've spoken a good amount about this topic in past episodes, so I won't go too deep into it here, but there are many news sources out there that exist almost exclusively for the purposes of entertainment, not education. And although it may be fun to watch Fox or NBC News and to hear about how the other side is full of idiots and they're all making the world worse, you're also less likely to get real information or at least you're unlikely to be exposed to information that doesn't support your existing viewpoint, which, chances are, has been at least partially handed to you, fully formed by one of these entities. And that's not a judgment. It's just an unfortunate reality. And the only way to combat that, to avoid having a prefab worldview built by a media empire, a media empire that, like Facebook, in many ways, is economically incentivized, which means existentially incentivized when we're talking about corporations, to keep you engaged and stress aroused. The only way to avoid having such an entity decide what reality is for you is to intentionally prune your viewing and listening and reading habits and ideally get a diversified enough mixture so that you're exposed to information presented by informed people from all sides of an issue at any given time. All right, end rant. Let's talk about self-care. This is a concept that is unfortunately often overlooked because many of us simply don't think about how our bodies and minds respond to outside variables while other people care a great deal about the world and about other people and they give all they can, but they don't realize that they're essentially draining themselves, harming themselves by wringing themselves dry, by caring too much and acting on all that caring. The former is not ideal because it leaves us beholden to the whims of those entities, the media and technology and other entities that want to keep us stirred up and engaged in clicking for their own purposes. That means we're likely to be spent and drained for their purposes as well, leaving little energy and attention left for things that we actually care about or should care about instead. And the latter isn't ideal, because although we are less likely to simply be pawns of the aforementioned stress-inciting entities, we're still spending ourselves, using up our reserves, trying to fight the good fight, 
We're more likely to succumb to health problems, to depression, to stagnation. We overextend in that particular direction. And as a result, we cease growing as people because we don't have any time to read or think or eat a halfway decent diet. This is important to notice how all of this influences how we feel and influences our long-term health. No one wants to be sick or drained of energy from constant stress, much less feel that pressure, that mental anguish, that fight-or-flight reflex all the time. But that's the situation in which we find ourselves very often. And this also scales up to the societal level. After all, societies are just big collections of people interacting and interrelating with each other. And if a huge portion or even a minority of those people are drained, are sick, in the viral sense or in the just not feeling well because everything's messed up sense, there's a problem. Systems that work when everything's optimal break down. Rules and regulations that generally keep things operating smoothly do not. And further, if we don't accurately identify threats when under the influence of stress, these issues tend to compound over the years. It's not just one major issue that passes us by, unsolved. It's issue after issue after issue. And before long, we're so traumatized, and I mean that in a very real way, both in the sense of having experienced something distressing and in the sense of being injured, of having gone through something physically and psychologically trying. We're so traumatized that we have trouble aggregating effort societally to work on the problems that we have chosen to solve and to muster the long-term attention and energy required to successfully undertake that effort. There are a lot of reasons that we've put off acting on the human activities that are speeding up the effects of global climate change, for instance. Reasons why we failed to vote in such a way that politicians would see that, see that it's a concern and come to make it a key focus of their platform rather than paying it lip service and doing the bare minimum necessary to get some brownie points with a portion of the press. But one big underlying reason that we have failed to act on this vitally important issue that supersedes many of the other issues that we actually do spend our time and energy on day to day is that we have trouble putting it into proper context. It's a slow-moving threat relative to something like crime in your neighborhood. And yes, crime in your neighborhood is also important, but having a neighborhood that's above sea level, that's not underwater, is arguably even more important. But who has the energy to worry about something like that when there are so many other seemingly more immediate concerns to fixate on? When all we see are breaking news bulletins and panic-inducing posts all day, every day, Our ability to recalibrate, our ability to refocus our attention on other things, on potentially more important things, it diminishes with enough exposure to that type of environment. There are ways to cope with stress as an individual. Some of these ways are even quite effective for those who make use of them regularly and intentionally. Mindfulness is a wonderful general principle that a lot of people find to be helpful. Simply being aware and noticing things, basically, and even going a little meta and noticing how you respond to certain stimuli, noticing when you're stressed and how you feel about being stressed, but allowing yourself to notice without judgment. It's a strange concept if you've never done it before, but it's also one of the more broad and also thankfully free things that you can do for yourself to start relieving stress right away. 
That said, there are entire industries that exist completely to deal with the symptoms of stress, but which never address the underlying symptoms of that stress. Now, I'd like to think that in most cases, this is because the underlying symptoms are very structural for many of us. Maybe our career choice and how we choose to spend our money, these are the major causes of our stress. And in that case, if you're not really looking to make a major life change, it wouldn't be terribly useful to buy a self-help book and have it tell you, well, the only way to feel better is to change your career and to buy different things. But there are incentives in place as well that make me suspect that some of these offerings are probably set up in such a way that we'll always need more of what they're offering and will therefore never actually deal with the real issues, whatever they might be, in each individual case. Or said another way, if you are always stressed but have found a product or service that can de-stress you for a while, it would be very bad business for the purveyor of that product or service to ever actually fix whatever it is that's stressing you out. Then you wouldn't need them anymore. And if they fixed the problem for enough of their customers, then they would cease to exist. The people behind that product or service would need to find new careers. And so there are good reasons why, just like with diets, many of the stress-related self-help resources available are actually oriented around perpetuating the problem and merely temporarily alleviating the symptoms rather than helping you pull it all up at the roots. Some may fail to dig deeper because they know that they are surface-level solutions for people who don't actually want to change, but whether through design or practicality, that's often what we are looking at in that space. Even when it comes to products or services that help with things like mindfulness, very often the focus is very superficial. And while I'm on that subject, I mentioned this before, but it's worth reiterating that the business models of many industries, including many media entities and social networking and marketing companies, entities that make products that we're exposed to pretty much continuously, all day, every day in contemporary society, they are incentivized to keep us riled up and stressed out. If they fail to keep us engaged in this way, we will consume less of what they're offering. Whether that's a product that purports to give us meaning and make us better, or an outrage-inducing headline for an article that wants us to share with our friends, spreading the hurts-so-good outrage further, their business models rely on this. And though these are not universally bad companies or industries, it's worth being aware so you can sort through what you're being offered and figure out which pieces of what they offer are good for you and for how you want to live, and which pieces are hurting you and keeping you from noticing what's changing in the world around you, keeping you from learning and adjusting your mental model appropriately because you are kept at the precipice of stress 24-7. And that's the crux of a bigger issue that this conversation leads into. What happens if we are unable to ascertain truth, to acquire real data, to be certain of what we're being told? What happens if our perceptions are so warped by stress that we fail to see dramatic and negative changes happening around us? And what happens further if the systems around us, either by design or as an unintentional byproduct, keep us in that stressed out state in perpetuity? It'd be similar 
to what happens, I think, in a world in which fake news and bad data are given the same credence as actual data, as verified news. When our communication mediums are flooded with false information, some of it blatantly so, some of it more believable, and maybe only 2% false, let's say, that can come to overwhelm the real data that we might otherwise pull from these sources. This disallows us from understanding what's actually happening, what's actually true, in the sense that we can prove something happened, something is real, and it skews how we see the world. It causes us to fall prey to appealing but unsupported fantasies and to be easier targets for charismatic liars with agendas. If I'm ignorant about science or prone to conspiracy thinking, maybe frequent enough exposure to flat world theory YouTube videos and blog posts will eventually convince me that the world is, in fact, flat. And the concept of spherical planets is all a government lie. My belief in this regard would then blunt my capacity to understand numerous other things about the world because my underlying base of information would be tainted by this media that is propagating a fake and bizarre conspiracy theory. The same is true about smaller, less potent myths and mistruths. I did an episode not long ago about the tulip mania story that's so popular in entrepreneurial and economic circles, but which proved not to be true once it was researched further. There's a good chance that believing something like this is true, despite it not being true, will not ever influence any other decision that we make or any other opinion that we hold, but it could, since every piece of knowledge that we imbibe is connected to every other piece of knowledge that we've collected even if only secondarily or even if only by a very small, nearly invisible thread. And the more fundamental the knowledge in question, the more likely it is to be connected to a huge percentage of our knowledge stockpile directly. Stress can warp the way that we see things, that we perceive the world in a similar way, and can therefore skew our understanding of reality. It's not 100% certain that information you take in while biologically aroused, again in the non-sexual sense, though presumably in the sexual sense as well, now that I think about it, it's not certain that the information you take in while in that state will alter your perception of the world in any meaningful way, but it could. And because we are frequently triggered to enter that state... By many of the main outlets, we used to get our information about the world, social media, conversations with friends, news networks, and websites. It's increasingly likely that our learning capabilities are being short-circuited, and what we perceive as the truth, as reality, is warped in some subtle or dramatic way. And that, in turn, can reverberate throughout our entire stockpile of knowledge. So, what's to be done? about this. I think awareness helps. It's not a silver bullet, but it makes it more likely that we will notice triggers when they pop up and trace those triggers backward to follow the money, you might say, and see who benefits from us responding in a certain way, who benefits from us getting stressed out or biologically aroused about something. It also helps to become more self-reliant, I think, in the sense that we feel strong and capable of dealing with whatever comes our way. There are stoic extremes to this, 
that appeal to some people more than others, but even a simple version of this mentality, reinforced over time, should help quite a lot. When things seem to be going sideways and your response is, okay, I've got this, you are in a much better position to perceive the world clearly because you do not succumb to the warped lens of stress and panic. Now, that'll mean something different for every single person, but in general, feeling capable of tackling whatever comes your way makes you less likely to be pushed into that type of cycle. There are a lot of different ways to achieve that sense of capability, but becoming more broadly knowledgeable, learning new skills, and facing fears and coping with them whenever possible does seem to be a good place to start. Also, remember that part of being self-reliant is being conscious of what's happening around you in addition to being cognizant of your own capabilities. Now, that doesn't mean you need to have your eyes on the news ticker 24-7. That's probably an unhealthy extreme for almost everyone. But the idea that not paying attention to the news ever is a solution is like saying, I feel unhealthy, so I'm never going to eat again. It creates an entirely new problem. And although it may be somewhat sexy to say that you're adhering to that type of extreme lifestyle choice, I mean, look around at all the trendy fasting and cleanse-related diets these days. Despite that, it's generally not ideal, not if you want to live in the world rather than alongside it. Balancing a moderate intake from multiple different sources will work better for most people. Don't be tempted by extremes just because they seem sexy or because balanced approaches seem too complicated or less visible, less Instagrammable. Stress is a multifaceted problem, but it does give us an excuse to look inward to figure out how we are responding to things on a variety of levels so that we might better understand how our perception of the world is skewed and how we might correct the warping of our individual lenses. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. This book is broadly about artificial intelligence, but it's also about technological repercussions and intelligence as a whole. It does get very granular within some very specific facets of this, like AI and the threats therein and the opportunities therein, but it also does cast kind of a wide net. So it's not just talking about artificial intelligence software, for instance. This book does pull in a lot of information from other books on the subject as well. If you've read a book like Superintelligence, which I've mentioned on the show before, this book is a little bit more optimistic than that book. It's a little less focused on the potential downsides, though it does mention most of the important ones and put them into the larger context of the book. But it also, in my opinion, waxed a little bit more philosophical, a bit like Sapiens or Homo Deus, which are two other books that I've recommended in the past, and which cover complex fields but do so in a way that doesn't leave out the sociological and philosophical and very human repercussions of some of these things that have happened and could happen. And so it's a really excellent read. It has some amazing stories. The prologue of the book, in fact, starts out with a story of how an AI could surreptitiously and in a very short period of time take over the world without anyone realizing it. And I think for a lot of people who have not been thinking about this for very long, or who have yet to find a 
compelling reason to care about the topic or to put it into something that seems like a realistic context, this book offers up a bunch of different examples for that. So that book, again, is Life 3.0 by Max Tegmark. You can find out more about me and my work, including all of the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of this podcast at letsknowthings.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on social media. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere. Just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. I am Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.